Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a philosophy and comedy podcast. Um, I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a philosopher and a, a television comedy writer. And I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I work on early 20th century European philosophy. And we're really fortunate and honored and happy because Kieran Setia is joining us today. Welcome, Kieran. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, so Kieran Setia is a professor of philosophy at MIT, and his book, Life is Hard, is out now in paperback. And it's a great book. So if you have the disposable income, you should buy it and read it and share it with your friends. Um, he also has a great podcast, Five Questions, uh, where he asks philosophers five questions about themselves. Um, and, and he brought a great question. What's the question you're bringing to us, the terrifying question, Karen? The terrifying question is, is almost everyone a failure? Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, yes. I think the answer is yes. This is a short <laughs> podcast. All right. Well, we wrap that up quickly. <laughs> Yeah, not, not us, but almost everyone else. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I would say me for sure. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> well, then I'm going to say no. Modesty forbid, forbid, or no, well, the anti-modesty forbids, humility forbids. Like, I'm not going to talk about you guys being a failure. I certainly feel there's so many things I would like to accomplish that I don't. So I feel like a failure. And I feel Do like you? this podcast is a failure across so many dimensions. <laughs> Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> well, I go, don't go. think it's a failure. Okay. <laughs> At least not don't, yet. Don't you I think, think barring it could be better? Some, barring some catastrophe, I don't think it's Don't you a think failure. it could be better, though? Oh, sure, but like almost everything could be better. Um, well, then that mean it's a failure? Oh, I see. Well, if the standard is perfection, then yes. But is well, that I guess, a good... So my feeling is... Let's ask Kieran. If I'm not failing at whatever standard I set myself, I should be setting myself a higher standard. So that failure is guaranteed. Well, yeah, I feel like otherwise I'm coasting. Like, <laughs> like I sort cheating. of think of like, like this podcast, I would like it to help, you know, thousands of people. Um, I'd like it to be as deep a work of philosophy as like the deepest works of philosophy. I'd like it to be understandable to like everybody and sort of effortlessly understandable and incredibly enjoyable and amusing. And I don't know. I think we're we're kind of coasting along at okay on those things, but I don't think it's a resounding success. I see. Well, I'm gaining some insight because we did an episode quite a while ago, which is uh, what if the best I can do just isn't good enough? And you suggested that topic, and I thought you were sort of bemoaning the fact or worrying or complaining. But, you know, on your standard, you ought to be very happy that nothing you do is good enough because that just is confirmation that you've set the bar high enough. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I try to be inference? a happy camper. But I've uh -huh. been talking a lot. Kieran, what do you think about this? Yeah, what do you think about this, Kieran? Help <laughs> it's us. It's funny. At, at first, I thought you were you were lowering expectations by saying that the podcast was a failure. But then it turned out that it's only a failure <laughs> with respect to such exalted standards that, that the expectations are, in fact, sky high. Exactly. Right, it's a humble I, I, brag, isn't it? <laughs> that's exactly, that is exactly what it is. I, I mean, I, I think that what we're doing is, in effect, the, the thing philosophers do that I, I also want to do, which is to interrogate the question I just asked by mm -hmm. by asking like what do we mean failure is it everyone a failure and there's like two dimensions to that that, it, that we could pull apart one is what exactly the standards for failure and success are and the other is whether we're looking at people being failures or projects so one thing that happens that was that we shifted from asking whether you Eric are a failure uh -huh. or, or, the, or the, you said you thought you were but then we shifted to whether the podcast was a failure and there's something a bit more tractable about that idea where we've got a particular project and we can say, well, is this project a failure or success? Did we succeed or fail in this project? 
And even with respect to that second question, I think what's coming out is that whether we're a failure or a success depends on what exactly the standards are. And in fact, what the project is. So if the project is to make a podcast that is, as you said, as deep as the deepest work of philosophy and as funny as the funniest comedy, then we sort of just de de describe the project in a way that makes it very likely we're going to fail by those standards. If the goal is to do a somewhat entertaining podcast that's somewhat philosophical, that might be that might be more more tractable. But so I, I kind of think there's a question about how we relate to projects, uh, particular projects as failures or successes. And then there's a question of whether you as a person are a failure, which seems like a more toxic kind of dangerous way to, to think about ourselves. And so I guess this is not really to answer your question, but just to say, yeah, we could, which way are we going to go? We which, could, yeah. We could... So, so I'll tell you what I'm worried about, Kieran. I'm worried about there's sort of two words for this thing, and I think they might be the same thing. One of them is sour grapes. And mm. that is when I fail at things to say that to try and succeed at those things is not worthwhile. And I'm worried about that. I'm worried that's some one of the things that kind of worries me about stoicism and Buddhism, that there's like there's there's sort of intellectual ways of 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 uh, protecting ourselves against uh, the possibility of loss. And then there's another word, which I think a phrase, which I think might be similar, called spiritual bypass. And the idea of spiritual <laughs> bypass is that rather than sort of dealing with our shit, we come up with some sort of uh, detached perspective from which it doesn't matter if it works or it doesn't work. And I'm worried about that too. And I, I've been a Buddhist monk, and it's sort of something that I feel like I'm worried about in my own case. That like that I might have some rationalization for for why like I could never fail. And I'm I'm worried that that's a cop out. So I don't know. Are those the same worries, yeah. sour grapes, and spiritual bypass? And and what's the answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, they do seem connected. And I, I share with you the, the the sort of resistance to this. There's a kind of stoic idea on which the things that are out of your control, you should just detach from completely and and not care about them. And I think both as a pragmatic matter, it's sometimes good to care about things that you don't think you can control. And as a, a moral matter, sometimes there are things like injustice or or loss that you can't control where it would be inhuman and a kind of failure to respond to reality, not to, to care about those things. So I, I agree with you in sort of wanting to push back against that stoic idea. I mean, maybe there's a way to, to kind of find a, a, a middle path where we mm. we're not led to deny the possibility of failure or to not acknowledge failure or to think failure is impossible, but to find ways to appreciate the things that are less prone to failure or more failure immune. So yeah. in relation to our activities, there's a distinction that I, I draw that I think is very orienting, which is the distinction between what I call telic and atelic activities. So the idea of a telic activity, like paradigmatically a project, is that it has a telos, a kind of endpoint that you're trying to achieve. So you're, you're trying to win an award, for instance, or have a kid or get married. There's some endpoint that you're aiming towards. And when you've got a telic activity, you, you're sort of aiming at fulfillment in the future and then you achieve it or you don't. And right now it's all in suspense. So you, you're sort of, the, the fear of failure hangs over you, but also the kind of aspiration to succeed. But not all activities are like that. So there are also atelic activities like just going for a walk or just talking philosophy with people where there's no particular endpoint that is the success of that activity or the failure of that activity. There's, there's sort of ongoing things that are fully realized in the present. They don't point towards a future outcome. This is this is a, a kind of idea that- You in, mean like in, a rock? 
Like a rock just is a rock and it's not trying to do anything? No, no, this, these are actives. So they're things where you're actively doing something, you're engaged in an activity, but there isn't an endpoint that is the, the termination of it. So, well, what makes them active? Oh, well, they require, they're, they're sort of dynamic forms of engagement where you're, you're in progress doing so like the a things. waterfall? So like, no, like breathing. Here's the way I've understood that Aristotelian distinction. One way I've heard it put is to say that with the atelic activities, the, let's see, I'm trying to remember how this, the ing ending. The progressive, yeah. Yeah, the progressive uh, entails the uh, perfective. Perfective, yes. Right? Yeah. So that, oh, so I don't it, understand it, that even it, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> okay, so what that means is if I am breathing, I have breathed. But if True. I am crossing the street, it doesn't follow that I have crossed the street. So that's a telic thing because I haven't. I can still fail to get to the other side, well, and if I won't I'm have inhaling, the street. I could fail to inhale if you choke me, right? Well, no, but you have inhaled, if only partially. Well, I've inhaled a little bit. Okay, but I think so. I'm trying to think of an. I was thinking of another example, which Eric might worry whether it's really active. But my mom used to say, uh, you know, if we had to get up really early, she would say, "Sleep fast." But I think you can only say fast <laughs> or quickly when you're talking about a telic uh, action, right? I mean, there's, I there's. I think it gets complicated because you can breathe fast, but I think that would mean that what that means is taking a full breath, right? I can't sleep quickly, um, and I can't sit quickly. I can sit down quickly, but I can't be sitting quickly or or slowly. So whether sleeping is active or sitting is active, it's still something you're doing, right? Is that what you're talking about, Kieran? Sleeping? Well, just think about talking about so so think about the contrast between recording this podcast where there's right. a. There's an end. We haven't done it yet. And at some point we will have done it and that will yeah. be in the past. So there's, there's this sort of future thing we're trying to get to. And once we've got to it, it's like, OK, that's history. And right now we're like, eh, it's, it's incomplete. Yeah. And then talking philosophy, talking about failure. There's a sense in which we're doing it right now. Like we might want to do more of it. We might do it badly or well. There's all kinds of, of sort of standards of success that you might apply to this. But they're very different from we're waiting for this future thing. We haven't got there yet. And so I'm thinking one kind of mistake we sometimes make when we think about failure and success in our lives and think about our lives in general is being excessively invested in these telic activities, sort of projects that point towards the future. And it's not that they don't matter. So it's not that success or failure in those things doesn't matter. But even if we don't achieve the recording of this podcast, there's a certain value in just having been in process, sort of in this active talking about failure that we're doing right now, that as it were, nothing, the future can't take that from us. And uh, well, it's true. not, it's sort of- But, uh, but so we can do a crappy job right now. Like we could be yes. failing in this very instant. Uh -huh. uh. So I don't see how, I don't see how this telic autotelic thing gets me off the hook because I could be, you know, in this conversation, I could be not listening to you and not getting your point and saying stupid things and interrupting. And it could just be a crappy philosophical uh, Every second of it could be crappy. So I don't, I, those seem to be distinctions that are different. Well, I mean, they're good distinctions, but it seems to me a different distinction. Well, so it's not that there's no possibility of failure in the sense of not doing something well when it comes uh -huh. to an atelic activity. The thought is just, and again, 
stereotypical philosopher. There's a distinction to make here between the kind of failure that telic activities present sure. you with, where it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Like you don't get to the end point. It's just the whole thing was sort of for nothing. And the kind of failure that you're interested in when you focus on atelic activities, which is how well am I doing what I'm doing right now? And it, it may be that the failure that, that you were worried about all along was really about how well you're doing yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. So, so we, which is very different from kind of thinking, I think when a lot of people worry that they're a failure, when they say, you know, my life is a failure, they're thinking in product terms. They're thinking, oh, the brass I ring. never actually, I'm never going to get the brass ring. Yeah, I never, I never won the, I never, you know, won an Oscar, or I never got my, got promoted to this job that was the job I always wanted to have. So one way to to sort of reframe failure in your life is to sort of ask, well, am I assessing myself by some achievement that is the product of a telic activity, a project that I might or might not get to? Or am I thinking, no, I just want to be doing whatever I'm doing well or badly. And I think we've already made some progress if we recognize that just doing what you're doing well, regardless of what ultimately comes from it, not that, not that what comes from it doesn't matter, but that, that there's some value in doing whatever you're doing well. I think what you, you're already two steps ahead of this philosophical therapy because you've already managed to apply to doing well such exaltedly high standards that it's very easy to, to then berate yourself for not doing it well enough. And I think you're, you're right that that, different, that problem isn't addressed by right. I, becoming I do less project-oriented. It's a famous case of the, of the millionaire on his deathbed saying, it was all worthless. I received yeah. the brass ring. So I've achieved the supposed telos of my life, but really my life was a complete failure. Um, and, that, and that's what worries me. I mean, it's not the only thing that worries me, but that's what I felt like talking about. I think the thing that seems so harsh about the judgment, I'm a failure or my life was a failure as a complete judgment is as the character of a verdict, like a mm -hmm. final verdict. And it's kind of categorical. But mm -hmm. I think it's important to realize that in atelic activities, there's still plenty of room for assessment of how how well or poorly you're doing and it's variable so it, it just going for a walk you might think there's no such thing as success or failure you know barring some terrible accident or something there's not much difference between doing it well and doing it poorly but lots of things that are atelic like being a father or i think of you know i guess i think of my job sort of in this way there's hurdles you jump over um, and I think I had a similar experience that you did, Kieran, as sort of you can get over a certain final hurdle and be left with a feeling of like, well, now what? Or um, when you don't have those hurdles or hoops to keep jumping through, you may be a little aimless because you hadn't been sustaining it as an atelic ongoing process. But I think when it's really rewarding, it's not that I drop all concern about how well I'm doing it. It's that I regard my, that kind of judgment as a constant sort of attempting to reach or maintain standards of a certain kind. And I can kind of fall short of them and I can kind of approach them. But it's not as if there's a final verdict which is waiting to be made. It's more like an ongoing open-ended sort of assessment of how well I seem to be doing. And so it is a little bit, there's always a kind of horizon of hope, right? <laughs> um, that even if I stumble a few times, um, all that means is I've got to you know, swim a little harder. So there's still plenty of room for self-criticism, even if you view the activities of your life in an atelic way, I think. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. In fact, again, I think Eric is like a couple of steps ahead because sometimes when I uh, say, hey, let's become less focused on projects, achieving projects, kind of big wins, people worry that if you aren't driven by projects 
that you either succeed or fail in once and for all. You you know you win the prize, get the promotion, get married, have a kid, or don't have, hit those life milestones. People sometimes worry that the alternative, where you become more atelic and process oriented, will will just be kind of totally laissez faire. Like ah oh, well, I guess now you can just kick back and not bother doing anything. And part right. of the response to that is that even when it comes to atelic activities there's room to assess whether you're doing them well or badly. Now, as Eric is pointing out, that yep. that has yeah. its threatening side too. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, I mean, two things to say about the threatening side of it that I've been thinking about. So one, one is the point that, that Taylor is making, which is there's this further shift from asking how well you're doing in a particular activity to this kind of overall assessment, like, am I a failure? That's uh -huh. another thing we might resist. Yeah. The other thing to say is, I, I do think there is a certain kind of exhaustingness to the way in which, for instance, just trying to be a good person is atelic. It's just an ongoing thing. Because there is a certain challenge that you're never done. You never get to say, mm -hmm. well, I've been good. Yeah. Uh, I've been nice to people. <laughs> and I'm done with that part. <laughs> now I get to kick back. And, you know, so there's a certain relentlessness to the atelic. Just you've got to keep trying to do a good job of whatever it is you're doing. And, and so the ongoingness and the high standards can be in, in the a way that Eric is pointing to. There's a kind of a risk that they'll be oppressive. So I think we've got yeah. several problems. So right. one is the project problem. Another is the high standards problem. And then a third is the overall assessment. Like, are you a failure problem? Yeah. And We're going to take a little break. But which problem are you most interested in talking about? I'm happy to talk about all of them, but I oh, think- Oh, I know you're happy. You seem like a happy person, but which would you most like to talk <laughs> oh, about? Uh, let's, let's talk a bit about the overall, whether a person can be a failure, and then maybe we'll come back to, okay. to standards. Good. That sounds and, interesting. And... So let's take a little break uh, and come back and we'll find out, can a person be a failure? And you, the listener, should come back because maybe it'll prevent you from being a failure. <laughs> Okay, we're back. Uh, we're with Kieran Sedia today, and we're talking about is almost everyone a failure? And we're we're zooming in on the question: Can a person be a failure? What do you think? Well, there's a historical and a philosophical point to make here. The historical point, which was really amazing to me, was that the idea of a person as a failure, the idea of the failure as a term for a person, is relatively recent. It so apparently emerges in English in sort of the mid 19th century, and it's hmm. bound up with shifts in ideology whereby people are assessed by credit ratings and financial success, the idea that there's a kind of single currency for assessing people. Hmm. The philosophical point is that I think this idea that you can assess a person as a failure goes along with an idea that a lot of philosophers have found and psychologists have found very seductive, which is that a good life has a kind of narrative structure. Ah, a narrative. So that you should think of your whole life as a kind of a kind of you're the hero of your own Hollywood movie and there's this great challenge that you must face and obstacles and then you overcome them and that it's that sort of defining narrative of your life that sets the standards not just for failure or success in a project but whether you you know you as such are a failure and that's an idea I think we should resist can a rock be a failure 
Well, I, I kind of think that we should resist the idea that even people can be failures. But oh, that's what I was going to say. Like, if a rock cannot be a failure in the same sense that a rock cannot be a success, and people are like rocks, <laughs> then we share the failure freeness of rocks. There's a quote by Angel Silesius that I kind of like, a rose blooms as it blooms, there is no why. And I think the idea is that the flower is sort of an unfolding natural process, and it doesn't fail or succeed because there's no, it's just, it is what it is. And if I view myself that way, um, and I kind of like this, but then I posted it once on Twitter and someone had said, <laughs> you're reducing a human being to like a broccoli. <laughs> like, like it's, it's, it's degrading to think that a human being cannot succeed more than a broccoli can or a rock. Well, I, I'm not sure about the plants, whether, whether plants can never fail. I... Well, how about a rock? Can a rock fail? The rock, the rock can't. But I think I think one thing so that we are do. Are you saying we should view ourselves as more like the rock? A rose can fail to bloom. I mean, there's yeah, a way true. of viewing. Yeah. There's a way of yeah. viewing a rose, which may be to impose our expectations on it, like it was a failure if it didn't blossom or unfold or something. Maybe the point of the little saying is that you shouldn't view it that way. I don't know if there's millions of acorns and only a couple of them become oak trees. I mean, but that's life, man. You know. But they're not all what failures. It is to be an acorn, <laughs> I know, are they not all failures? But yeah. I'd like to ask you a question about the historical point. It's very interesting what you yeah. said about the recentness of the idea of a person being a failure. But isn't there an earlier version in Christianity that you're either going to heaven or hell? And uh, your life is a moral success if you get to heaven, and it's a failure if you go to hell. And it's a different kind of failure, but it's clearly categorical and final. No, I think that is really interesting. And I think there's, it's true that you get this sort of neat dividing line in the heaven-hell scenario. I mean, I, I mean, one thing that I, I suppose is happening in this 19th century context is a kind of marriage of kinds of assessment, of overall assessment that maybe have that religious backing with the profane world of money-making and careers. And they're often kind of mushed together. So, you know, whether you're a good person supporting your family and whether you're making lots of money get sort of run together. Yeah. So you get yeah. these, these sort of depressions in the 19th century where people are losing their jobs and then they, there are waves of suicide in response because people's identities as worthy of love or respect are kind of bound up with this kind of commercial success. So I, I wonder how those two interact. I mean, putting it in this way does suggest that it has maybe specifically Christian roots and that, I that bet. maybe in other traditions we wouldn't have this idea that there's a final judgment in the same way on someone overall. Weber talks about capitalism and having this interest in accumulation being a kind of moral demand or duty, right? The, the Benjamin Franklin sort of thriftiness and accumulation is like a moral mission that says spiritual significance. And so at least at that point, it looks like the moral Christian story or one version of it is converging with a economic prosperity kind of idea. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to be the heel wrestler here for a second, because <laughs> I think in our lives, we're constantly making judgments of other people. Do we want to go out with them? Do we want to be friends with them? Do we want to work with them? So we're judging people like crazy. And we're lying if we say we're not. So if we really judge people, isn't it sort of a pious sentiment that people don't really believe that everybody is successful? Because if you're like, hey, who are you going to go out to dinner with? Um, an extremely boring, tedious ugly person or a scintillating, fun, beautiful person. Well, I'm going to pick the second one. So clearly you think that the beautiful, interesting person has succeeded along some metric that the boring, ugly person has failed on. So you, you do judge people, don't you? 
Like I'm, I guess I'm, I find it an attractive idea that everyone is successful. I think that's a beautiful sentiment, but I'm having trouble applying it in a way that it doesn't sort of seem like bullshit. Yeah. Well, I think the idea that I have is less that everyone's successful and more that the more fine grained we are, the more realistic we are. So asking whether someone as a whole is a failure or a loser mm -hmm. is something we could do without. We could ask in all the different departments of their life in this project or that project, did they fail at this? Did they succeed at that? Those questions, I think, don't go away. And similarly, in assessing someone in the way you're describing, I guess we could form an overall assessment. And for some purposes, we might be forced to make overall assessments. But typically, when you're looking at someone, the answer to the question, uh, what do I think of them? What kind of judgments do I make? Is I, I agree with you. It's not no judgment. Mm -hmm. But it's complicated. It's fine-grained. It's like there's the person, the people are messy. So there'll be people who are in certain ways good and in certain ways bad and some people who you'd love to have dinner with but you wouldn't want them to do your do your accounts you know right i love woody allen's films but i wouldn't yeah. have him babysit a child as a person he's pretty horrendous but as a filmmaker he's quite good so one of the things that's happening when we make these overall assessments like you know heaven hell uh or failure loser winner is that we're losing we're sort of ignoring the complexity of of a realistic assessment of what someone's character is, uh -huh, or what someone's true. what someone's life is like, and it, you know it's reductive. And I think it's reductive in a way that's very blinkering. So if you sort of try to live your life as if there's one defining thing that you have to succeed in, it's not just that you risk failing in that one thing; it's also that you're closing yourself off to all the millions of other things that are happening in your life that are genuine sources of value, and that monolithic kind of assessment of failure or success or, or of someone's character, I think we could live without. But but I, that wouldn't mean living without judgment altogether. And is there any overall super, super judgment that orders the lower judgments? Like if someone says, well, I lie to my friends and I'm extremely cruel, but I'm great at Pachisi, that you'd be like, ah, <laughs> that that's not, you're still a loser because um, you lie to your friends and you're extremely cruel and I don't care about Pachisi terribly much. It's like, it's it's fine, but it's just not a, up, up there with being a good friend. But why do you insist on putting in the you're a loser, which is the categorical judgment? I mean, I <laughs> oh. think that's what I think. See, that's a little, that's pretty harsh, even with the, somebody who's pretty awful in a lot of ways. I guess what I'm sort of saying is, so there's this guy who lies to his friends and he's really cruel. And we're deciding, do we want to hang out with him at the philosophy conference or the party? Or do we want him to date someone we care about? And we say, no, no, keep that guy away from us. And then you're a loser is just a way of putting that uh, practice into a verbal formulation. Because he's like, well, why? how come you never hang out with me? And you're like, well, okay, I, I, you, I, I'm sorry to have to say this to you. But you're a deeply uh, flawed human. And until you improve, I'm not inviting you to my birthday party. You just suck. I mean, I, like, I don't know what the, I don't know if the language matters because we are, we are making a categorical judgment of this guy. We don't want to be around him. We don't want our friends to be around him. We're not interested in, I mean, we're, we're, we don't have time for this guy. We have limited time on earth. We don't like this guy. But you, you don't choose all your friends just based on purely moral grounds, do you? No, I'm not saying it's purely moral. Like someone could be extremely moral and incredibly tedious. And I'm not saying they all are, but it's it's not. It, I've seen that. <laughs> but you also have to make a categorical judgment about whether you're going to hang out with a boring, tedious person. Absolutely. Right? I mean, I think we're mistaking the categoricalness of this sort of moral judgment that's about somebody with a different kind of either or. Like, am I going to hang out with this person? There's all kinds of people who are perfectly wonderful yeah, yeah. and you can't really find fault with them. They're a little tiresome and you decide not to hang out with them. 
Um, that's a different kind of judgment than the judgment that there's something, I don't know, maybe even irredeemably, but at least categorically awful that you disapprove about. That's a moral judgment. I think it's not enough. In other words, I, I'm, what I'm challenging is the idea that you can uh, defend this quasi-moral judgment of the person's character in this categorical way by saying, look, don't we have to make these practical choices about who we hang out with? These are very different kinds of decisions we have to make, it seems to me. And they may all require some kind of either or, because you can't just be on the fence about everything. But I think I think it's the moral version that worries me. Well, what if we take the morality out of it and we just say we're making a general judgment and we're not going to yet say if it's existential or aesthetic or moral about people because we've got a limited amount of time and some people are doing well and some people are doing poorly. And is it moral or not? Who knows? They have failed to appeal to me. Okay. <laughs> they are failures in terms of be friends with Taylor Carmen test, whatever that's worth. But that's hardly the same thing as saying the person's a failure. Okay. Um, I mean, one one thing to say here is that that I, I, so I agree with a lot of what Taylor said that I think there are practical circumstances that force you to to like put people in boxes, but you you do that when you have to for those practical purposes. Like often we just don't need to make when we don't need to make those black or white judgments. Why make, why make them? The other thing to say that to pick up on on this, the the moral thread is I do think there's a very strong um, tradition in philosophy of giving a kind of very central priority to morality. So you find this Kantian idea that um, it, if you take away the goodwill, nothing has any value at all. So uh -huh. the thought would be if if someone isn't isn't a good person, really th their happiness is worth nothing. No other none of the other skills. Oh, wait, it, does Kant, Kant says, think you can use the the evil tall person to get a book off a high shelf? I mean, he must think they have some value, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, he thinks that they still are ends in themselves, and you, you know, you should treat them as ends, not merely as means. But nothing about them, like you shouldn't. It, it wouldn't be a good thing if they were happy. And he says, like the coolness of the scoundrel it, it isn't a virtue. Like it, in someone who's bad, like he, if we imagine someone who's like really, really morally depraved but witty, we might think, hey, look, this person's morally bad, but there's no denying that they're pretty funny. Uh -huh. the, the Kantian picture is something like, well, look, the wit of, is is deprived of all value in the in the absence of, of moral virtue. But how is that different from getting the thing off the top shelf, off the high shelf? Like this tall scoundrel is obviously valuable to me if I need to get something off a high shelf. Ah, yeah. Instrumentally valuable. Yeah, but that, yeah, I'm sorry. But I think Taylor's... And the witty scoundrel is valuable to me if I wish to laugh. Right, but there's the value to you. I think what Taylor's saying was sort of the instrumental value, whether you can get something out of it. So you could still produce the laugh, maybe. But there's a there's another kind of category of value when you're making these the kind of judgments we've been talking about, where you you assess someone for what in old-fashioned terms is virtue, like you, uh -huh. you're assess, assessing whether they're admirable in some way, or whether you you sort of um, there's some feature of their character or person that you have a positive regard for. That, that sort of it might correlate with them being useful to you. Hume thought there was a very close correlation between people having virtues and them being useful to themselves and others. So Kant thought I cannot admire someone's height? Yeah. Well, I don't, I'm not sure he would ever... <laughs> he probably thought you couldn't admire someone's height, period. But I think he, he really did think you couldn't... If someone did, was morally depraved, There was you couldn't admire some other features of them and say, well... But still, you know, you gotta, you gotta. That seems crazy. I mean, I, I a lot of props to Khan. I know he was important, but that seems a crazy thing to say. Do you, do you guys believe that? You can't admire them for their height. Maybe that's a way of putting it. I mean, you don't think huh. they get credit for it, right? If it's something like their height, it's not something they 
sort of I'm just putting this in my own words, trying to get the get the intuition. There's something right about that. Like if it's just the height you're admiring, it's not something they get credit for somehow. I don't know if that's his idea. It's something like that. If it's really just so a what is this property. notion of giving everybody credit? That that seems to be a kind of a weird idea. Moral worth. It's moral worth in his language. Yeah. I think. And do be. you believe in that, Taylor? Because earlier you seemed to think like, oh, all they are is sort of like, like there's a buffet of life, and there's things that you happen to enjoy. But you're not claiming to make a, a claim of what whether people are worthwhile. They're just, do you want to yourself? Am I misstating? You're 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 looking pretty skeptical. So I must uh, be misstating. Uh, I was I was trying to differentiate those because I thought you were blurring them together. And I was saying you have to make decisions about who you're going to hang out with, and that may just have to do with idiosyncrasies of your tastes and your preferences and how you get along with this person. Very different from the kind of categorical judgment that I. I'm worried about, as maybe we all are at some level, that you come to this final verdict that this person is a loser, a failure. It's a kind of modern, maybe in the capitalist world, categorical final judgment about their worth. That's really, it seems to me, very dangerous impulse. If as a child I was beaten by a man with a big nose, I could say, I don't want to hang out with people with big noses. And that's an idiosyncratic claim about me. But if I think someone is just incredibly tedious, I'm not just saying, I, I sort of think, and, and if you're, if you're on to, if, 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 I, no one should hang out with them. I mean, no, unless they're true. a glutton for punishment. No, that's not true. He could, he could <laughs> no? fall in love with somebody who's equally tedious and they could be Mr. and Mrs. Tedious and they maybe would get along great. And they're I mean, two tedious people. Why not? I mean, should, they, should, they were should, lucky to find each other. Of them. Who else could stand uh, it besides them? I guess, I guess. <laughs> But I, I think I think part of the just to f fill in two things. So one is I, I do think this the question whether you want to hang out with them is a perfectly good question that comes up in practice with people a lot of the time. But I don't think that question is somehow the sort of key question uh -huh, for assessing uh -huh. like right the, the final uh, arbiter. Well, what is the key like. question? And, and, well, I don't think I think I'm resisting the idea that there, there is, is no a kind of key. final yeah, no, no, should no resisting this. question, and, and we should resist it. I mean, so and to go back to the question whether whether I agree with Kant, I'm thinking no. I mean, Kant is a particularly extreme version uh, of this idea that there is a final right. test, and the test is the goodwill. And it's 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 not just that there's a final test, but it's moralized. And I, you know, I, I think you can lose the moralization, but you, you, if you still have the idea that there's this final overall assessment, thumbs up, thumbs down, there's something distorting about that. So I, I don't agree with Kant, but I think just correcting his moralism isn't enough. So what, what are, would you be satisfied with um, like a multiple aptitude test? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not, not sure. If I can answer, I, I think. Oh, okay. I was gonna, answer the reason I'm behalf. asking that is like, are we against the notion of tests of people to court, or are we just against the idea of a, a single number? Like, you could get a, a report on your life, and it's like, oh, when it came to morality, you got a six out of 10. That was pretty good. But when you came to, um, you know, taking joy in the moment, you got a nine out of 10. That was excellent. <laughs> like, like, is that. Is is that the the proposal, or is that there shouldn't be a test at all? There shouldn't be any evaluation. Taylor was about to answer on my behalf, and it's it's quite likely uh, his answer is going to be better than mine would be. So <laughs> I was going to propose this um, that part of the points, at least sometimes, of having the multiple measures or metrics or whatever, is to average them to make a final decision about whether uh -huh. you're going to let this person into the graduate program or hire them or whatever. No, I don't think I don't think that's true because I think if you're getting a basketball team together. 
you're not averaging them. Right. <laughs> Some okay. of them you're ignoring. <laughs> if, if you if you learn that Richard Feynman did horribly in all his humanities classes, who cares? I, I mean, you could care for well, other right. reasons, but if you're okay. putting a physics yeah. team, a physics department together, I don't think you care how good he was at appreciating French literature. I, I'm I think sure he that's was pretty a good mediocre, thing. honestly. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading something recently. Who was it? Was it? Uh, Nostradamus. Somebody's. <laughs> oh, I know. Richard Dreyfus. The actor uh -huh. was interviewed, and he was talking about his uh, mental health issues, uh, depression, and so on. But he was saying that in high school, he could not pass a math test. He would get Fs, and he took the course over again and got an F and F, and they finally let him graduate just out of mercy. But he was saying he could not do it as some kind of learning disability. But the thing that got him through it was that he was so confident that he was talented as an actor he was thinking, I'm going to make it through this. And he wasn't sort of defeated by this. Mm -hmm. So there's an extreme case of like a lot of talent and an abject failure for whatever reasons at some other task. And yeah, that's a good thing that they didn't keep him back and let that crush him. But, but I'm interested in, in just the idea that we shouldn't judge people at all. No, that doesn't follow. That's a slippery... But I kind of like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you like I mean, the idea that we shouldn't judge people at all? Yeah, I like the idea that the whole yeah. idea of testing and evaluating people is wrong and it's it's a mistake. You contain multitudes. <laughs> that's all I can say. <laughs> I mean, one thing to say about the the testing idea that this is probably doesn't get to the bottom of what is creepy about it, but it does connect with the telic a telic final completion versus ongoing activity thing. In that to test someone is to take a kind of snapshot of where they are now. Yeah, and. One way, one kind of problem with that is that people change, people develop. Even the idea that at the end of someone's life, you could sort of look at how many acts of kindness there were and say, you want to know if this was a kind person? Well, you know, tot up uh -huh. the acts. It's somehow trying to translate something atelic that's about your ongoing orientation that might develop over time into some discrete checklist of projects. And that's one way in which the testing model feels like, to me, like it's distorting something about our lives. Yeah. I also wonder um, if people will study for the, what's it called? Teach to the test? Is that the yeah, kind of way people that... will teach yeah. to the test. <laughs> yeah. People will start, yeah. like, I think that's what yeah. those effective altruists do, is that people have come up with a sort of not so great, but reasonable way of assessing morality. And then they start acting as if that's all there is. So they're studying for the test rather than, you know, being open to actually how to be a good, a better person. Yeah, there is that sort of anxiety that the, that if you you want to be an effective altruist and only support causes that can be shown to be quantifiably successful, you're going to gravitate towards things that are easy to quantify, and then certain kinds of very important aspects of virtue or ethical life, especially political ones, which are very, very, very hard to quantify. Well, just because of the the kind of bias of measurement yeah. towards the measurable will fall out. So I, I think you're right about that. That, that that's, that's another way in which focusing on testing can be distorting. I was just going to pick up on something that, that the conversation earlier about the Richard Dreyfus thing reminded me of something. One of the there are many things I would complain about about MIT uh, given time, but one thing that I kind of like about uh, MIT is is the way they do undergrad admissions. And one of the things they say is. One, one reason they really care about people who have extracurricular interests that really are important to them is that when you come to MIT, and this connects with failure, typically you were in a high, you were like the ace at science and math in your high school. And you come to MIT and on average, you're average. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And your entire identity, if your entire identity was built around being the best at this, oh. only a tiny fraction of those people get to keep that identity at MIT. The rest 
that crashes. That's interesting. Like you, you, you face this great challenge. And one of the reasons they really like people who also play the trombone is that those people are like, yes, uh -huh. but being good at math and science is not all there is to me. Nice. I play the trombone. And uh -huh. they have some sense of the, the kind of richness of their own life. They're not bound up in one project. I hope they didn't pretend to like the trombone to get into MIT. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, they would really have flown it. Yeah, exactly. That would and be a real they might even frame. be the best trombone player at MIT. <laughs> That's, it's true. Very good. There's, lots of, there's lots of athletics things where you could think, I could be the yeah. best at, uh, you know, linebacker at MIT. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the part of our discussion has been kind of like how you balance like slipping sliding back from two extremes one is the categorical harsh judgment that you're a failure a success or damned or saved and on the other hand just not having any standards of evaluation and saying everybody's beautiful in their own way and everybody's a success yeah. and we're no longer judging that's the kind of dichotomy i think eric is sort of challenging us yeah with. love and mercy no no i mean judgment and mercy rather judgment right exactly how to combine these things and i was just thinking it's sort of ironic uh, I'm absolutely not in the favor of the saved, damned, heaven, hell scheme. That seems to me really inhuman. But the one thing about that Christian ethic, which uh, comes out especially, I think, in, in uh, a lot of Dostoevsky characters, is that they look like it can be really awful, and yet they're not unredeemable, right? And there's a certain idea, this sort of cliched, sentimental idea that on your deathbed you can sort of convert and take everything back. It might seem like a cheat, but there's some very good moral intuition there, I think, which is that it's not for you to judge within the scope of somebody's life whether they've been a success or a failure. You always have to, there's always a kind of margin of possibility of redemption. I think, I, I think Dostoevsky had a really good feel for that, even if it's totally secularized, that as bad as someone may be, the father Karamazov or, you know, whoever, um, the light's never completely out on them. And I think that kind of mercy, even though it goes together with this ultimate judgment of gods is really worth hanging on to. It doesn't mean you don't judge them, but it does mean leaving a kind of margin of mercy or compassion, almost no matter how bad they might look, <laughs> right? So I, I'm kind of sympathetic to that idea. And, 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 and does that flip? Like, no matter how good someone looks, they could be really awful well, I, deep down. Well, I do think some of his characters are designed to be that way. I think, yeah, I that's, think that's true. The, um, the plan for the brothers Karamazov was that this would just be the beginning of the story of Alyosha's later life, mm -hmm. which turned out he had not yet met all the troubles he was going to face. And that's because he hasn't yet quite stepped up to all the difficulties that oh, some of his, no his two other brothers are. Did he leave any outlines for Alyosha? Alyosha... Brothers Karamazov too? Not that I know of, but he mentions this at the, just the very beginning. Like, this oh. is the beginning of the story. And I was going to ask you, Kieran, we don't have time to go into it here, but maybe on another podcast, I wanted to ask you about Prince Mishkin. Because I think, think Prince Mishkin in The Idiot is a kind of problematic character. He's not idealized. He's there's. I wouldn't say he's a failure, but I would say there's something going on that's making uh, making trouble <laughs> for that him. Might Let's be take right. a little break. Let's take a little break, and then, okay. and then we'll come <laughs> okay. back. Okay, okay. okay. We're going to take a little break. Okay, we took a little break. Okay, so we're we're gonna kind of we have fifteen more minutes to go. What should we talk about? He wanted to say something about Prince Mishkin, I think. Oh, what do you want to say well, about I, Prince Mishkin? I, I, I will say I do have a soft spot for Prince Mishkin, who's this kind of 
saintly character in in Dostoevsky's novel The Idiot. He's the idiot from the novel The Idiot. He's the idiot. Yeah. So he's like and, a holy but, fool. Yes, exactly. Okay. I will say that I I don't have a soft spot for Alyosha. We had a reading group on the Brothers Karamazov at, oh. at MIT a few oh. years ago, and it was really split between the people who really bought Alyosha, who's oh. the the kind of is he a monk? Uh, he's yeah. trained to be a monk. Or, yeah. Training, training uh, to be a monk. Training with, to be. Uh, so uh, yeah. And really, well, like they they bought his uh, they bought the uh, the PR and the people who felt like there was who definitely felt your the reaction you have to Mishkin. They had this sense that there was something interesting, kind of problematic about him. And there is some the introduction to Brothers Karamazov is funny because Dostoevsky goes on and on and on about the hero being Alyosha yeah. to the point where he's got to be joking. Like there's some way in which mm. he's laying it on so I thought Alyosha was terrific. You know, what's what's the problem you guys have with Alyosha? Oh, I, th he's I think a, he's a insipid, real problem. You know, well, a... <laughs> it's not just that. It's that he wants to please everybody. Yeah. And and he's trying to do everything he can for everybody, and that means he's defending Dimitri to somebody else, and then that turns out to offend them. And he's so naive, but it's not completely innocent. It's um, he doesn't have a certain kind of courage to look like the bad guy and to sort of make a hard choice, which some people are not going to be happy with. He's desperately trying to... Which hard choice do you wish he had made? Well, you know, he's in the middle of these terrible conflicts between the father and the two other brothers and all the characters. It's not that I don't like him. I mean, he's kind of adorable, but he's um, he's innocent to a fault, I guess is huh. what you yeah, might he, say. He lacks edge. He, he doesn't... Yeah. He's, he's, yeah. I, I think Dostoevsky... I, I guess my idea is that um, he's painting these characters precisely in order to say that all the things you may think are vices in the other characters are also part of what we need to get by and to live and we yeah, couldn't be it's like pascal we're neither angels nor insects so some of the characters look like insects alyasha looks like an angel but um you can't be an angel in this world i think of uh, them very similar but now i have to go back and reread the idiot because it's been forever since i've looked at it and see what i think can i can i swerve the topic back to something Please. else that we, yes. we left hanging and yes. it might be a thing we could talk about for the, for the next 10 minutes which is the, the thing that eric brought up right at the beginning that, that's hovered over us which is this idea that we we in a sense want to have standards like we want to we don't want to give up, or well, maybe Eric does want to give up on judgment altogether. But there's a, a sense that we need, we might need judgment, in order to to press ourselves to really try. And I think what, one way to think about this that that is potentially philosophically illuminating is through this this development in political philosophy, where people contrast ideal theory, where you you assess society by the lights of a kind of utopian picture how how everything ought to be, as opposed to non-ideal political theory where what you do is you say look i can't imagine what an ideal would be right now but i tell you what's a problem it's you know this kind of racial injustice or this kind of social inequality and you focus on uh, ameliorating something problematic and i wonder if that distinction is one we could carry over into as thinking about our own lives and thinking about our own activities so you could say i'm making this podcast Here's my ideal. It transforms the world of philosophy and light entertainment. You know, I have this dream. How do I get there from here? It, I don't know how to do it. It's mostly just a, a mechanism of self-flagellation. But you could just say, look, hold on. I'm trying to do this well. What are the glitches? Like, what's not working? How can I fix it? And so sometimes I think one way to have standards without berating ourselves with the idea that we're always a failure, we're always falling short of some ideal is to say, I'm not going to assess myself by an ideal. I'm going to find out what's not working and try and improve it. And uh -huh. so you, you could have standards that way. It would be a way of being not passive about making things better 
that is a, that doesn't require this sort of yeah you know ideal I, standard. I, I also wonder perfection. if yeah. if a way to do it is um, uh, I know there's a philosophy word for this, but I can't remember it. But it's sort of like you look at the actual relationships you're in and whether people are asking something from you and you try and give them what they need. Um, so I'm not coming at it from a narcissistic point of view and saying like, oh, do I have an ego ideal that I could achieve? But it's more like, is the audience getting what they need? Is Kieran yeah, getting what yeah. he needs? Uh, you know, if I'm talking about some professor and then they call up, do they say, hey, you gave a caricatured idea of my view. That wasn't cool. Are people who are, you know, and then maybe we'll find out, oh, there's all these sort of people who like, um, they're suffering from depression. And whenever our podcast is too depressing, I think it's funny, but to them, it's really painful. So I'm like, oh, I need to change that. So it's more it's more about an interpersonal sense of um, justice rather than an ideal sense of justice. There must be a philosophy word for that, isn't there? We should coin one right now. If, if there isn't one, there we, is should, one, we should trademark like it. it. There might be. I, mean, <laughs> I feel like I read an article about it once. It, I mean, it definitely, what you're describing seems like you could have an interpersonal idea picture that still had this idealizing thing. Like my goal is to keep everyone happy all the time and everyone is you know some, something that is unrealistic i think what you described wasn't just interpersonal it was sort of interpersonally responsive to problems in a way like yeah who, who is struggling with this what who, mm. whose needs are not being met and again mm. i think that is just a much more realistic way to try to make things better is to start with what's not what's not working uh and and be sensitive to it it reminds me a little bit of the distinction Carol Gilgan draws between the Kohlberg principled-based moral reasoning, and I can't remember yeah. her word for the other one, but it's kind of connectedness or compassion or interpersonal sort of interactive. Like people talk uh, about the ethics of care, that kind of Something model. like that, yeah. right, where the principle is going to set a kind of fairly rigid bar about rightness or wrongness. Should the husband steal the medicine for his that his wife needs that they can't afford? And the principled view of that is should he and you answer yes or no but the other way of hearing the question is should he steal it and then you might have a variety of answers like maybe he could borrow the money maybe he could you know there's a whole there's a range of possibilities rather than a categorical yes he should or no he shouldn't there's two ways of hearing that question so she claimed men and women hear it differently you can take that or leave it but there's a difference of style there top down principled or bottom up i guess one of the things one of the things i like about it is, is i feel like um if i'm going through life constantly trying to succeed that makes me kind of a narcissistic individual because i'm so relentlessly focused on myself and my own standards and, and i kind of feel like i don't want to be that way like i don't want to i don't want to hurt people and i don't want to waste my life but i also don't want to be constantly focused on myself to such a great extent yeah, I like that. I mean, there's, maybe there's an instance here of a kind of, you know, scare quotes, paradox that's akin to the paradox of egoism that philosophers talk about, where yeah. if all you care about is your own happiness and you never actually invest in anything but your own feelings, like other people or other activities, you're not actually going to have the kind of investments in the world that would allow you to be happy. And maybe there's a right. similar thing going on here, where which is if, if I'm constantly focusing on my own success, there's a there's it's going to get in the way of a kind of wholehearted engagement with other people or activities that that relate to them that that would would actually have a chance of 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 leading to flourishing or or, or being more successful 
And so, yeah, that I see that worry about. I think a version of that paradox might be this, what I was thinking about also very at the beginning of our conversation today, that maybe by focusing on the question, you know, from the outset, is this going to be a success or a failure? You're almost guaranteeing that it's going to be a failure because you're always putting the bar yeah, you can put the bar. Yeah, you're, yeah well, yeah. you're uh, maybe almost in yeah. principle because it is since it is the measure of success, any actual outcome falls under it somewhere. Right? But also, maybe my own neurotic version of success and failure is going to imprison me. Yeah, and it's not going to make me open to what I could actually learn from other people in other situations. I mean, I love this because it suggests that by framing the question in the way I did at the beginning of the podcast. I've I've inflicted on on our listeners <laughs> this the very paradigm that we're trying to extricate them from by by saying everyone's now that barely able to listen to what we're saying because they're just thinking well am I a failure what I you know, <laughs> suddenly this thought has infected their thinking so yeah that the, uh, the, the the problem is we asked this question to be the poison is the cure. It's like an inoculation. It's like a vaccine. <laughs> you have to get a little bit okay, infected good, good. To, to get over it. Yeah, that's okay. I good. good. Right. I mean, I think we, we do say it's terrifying questions, but it's sort of like, why are you asking yourself such terrifying questions? Maybe you'd be less <laughs> yes. terrified if you so asked yourself fewer terrifying questions. You know? <laughs> well, early in the podcast, Eric, at one point you did stop and say, are you just less terrified than I am? And I think I think we decided that I am. I think you and I have you slightly are, you different... Are. Well, or you keep a stiff upper lip. I, I bring a lot less anxiety to these questions <laughs> I, than I you think, do. I, I, think think you, I think you bring a stiff upper lip. I think you've learned on the prairie or in the West that you know, you're know you going to do what a philosopher has to do and you're not going to do a lot of wine and about Roll it. up our sleeves and get yeah. the work done. Yeah. Maybe that's right. Well, any any last conclusions either of you want to make? I'm I'm feeling pretty pretty chill. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a that was a sharp descent. So yeah, we always we've been trying to come in on to a softer landing recently, rather than <laughs> uh, just sort of feeling like we wrapped it up and and uh, beat down the terrifying question. I mean, um, I mean, again, reflexivity is usually your friend in philosophy and, and having mm -hmm. a podcast on failure that ends with us sort of just petering out, not with without any <laughs> grand conclusion. That seems yeah. very appropriate. I think right. this was a very nice podcast. And I, I, I don't want to ask myself whether it was a success or failure. I think it was just fine. It was great. You no, know, it's like the, yeah. it just like the rose. It just yeah. is as it, it is. It just yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is okay. and was. It's like a rock. Yeah. 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 Thanks for joining us, Kieran. That was great. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's edited by me, Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and the cover art is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions. <laughs>